Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thine hand, and forget not the humble. Thou hast seen it, for thou beholdest mischief and spite, to be quiet with thy hand. The, com- the poor committeth himself unto thee, thou art the helper of the fatherless. The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. Judge the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. And here in verse 17, Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their hearts. That's interesting. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear. And so God will hear them, and their heart is prepared by him. We read about that, uh, our forefathers in church history this morning, right? And how they believed. Um, the quotes we have, very little is known of what they have. A lot of things are lost. Very much what we believe. God is sovereign, that grace comes from him and him alone, and that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Let us go before our God with rejoicing in our hearts. And so, go, Lord God above, as we come before you as your people, people who are brought into grace by the covenant that you have made within the Trinity from eternity past and applied it to us in the here and now, Lord, the covenant of grace, and given us your spirits, that we, we may respond, that our hearts are prepared, so that we become indeed humble and more humble, Lord, before you. We thank you, God, especially, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for being a holy and just God, a God of order and a God of a holy and righteous law that you have written on our hearts and given to us, Lord, in the word of God. It is there to direct us goodness and protect us from wickedness and the harms therein, Lord. We thank you, God, for writing it down in the Bible, giving us your word, your will, scripturated God, not only the law, but also the gospel, and above all the gospel, Lord, for the law brings conviction, but the gospel brings salvation. And so, Lord God above, we are thankful for Jesus Christ and for your word, for your revelation, for your holiness, God, and that you are renewing us, and that salvation brings with it the power to become more like Jesus, the power of grace, the power of the Spirit, Lord, and to be holy like you, and that is to follow your law. For, Lord, we see that grace and law are not contrary, God, rather the cross. We pray, God, for our denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church that we are covenanted with. We ask, Lord, that you continue to be with her in spite of her limitations and sins, Lord, whatever they may be and some that we are aware of, God. We pray in particular, Lord, uh, for home missions. That is the effort of her at the, de- not, at the national level, the denomination level, Lord, as well as the Presbytery, the regional churches, and the local churches, God, uh, to establish new churches in America. Lord, we are becoming more and more unbelieving less Christian, further away from our heritage in many ways, God, although, again, not a perfect heritage. And so, Lord, may we as a denomination uh, love our neighbors, love our nation, God, and desire and continue to desire to work to that end, have the funds, to have the means, to have the ability to establish churches, Lord, to find people who wish to gather together and start an Orthodox Presbyterian Church, Lord, that is faithful to your word, uh, that will follow your ways, God, and that will uh, love the saints and help the saints grow and protect them, Lord, from sin and the devil and the world and the flesh, and also, Lord, to preach the gospel to a lost and dying world. And so, God, we ask for continued coordination at the national level, Lord, that they would be on the same page. There would be disagreements specifically how to allot funds and how to allot pastors and how to allot resources, God, and in promotion and light, God, and this is to be expected, we have continued as we have over the many decades, love and understanding for those who have a disagreement, Lord, and we vote and we decide and we do thus. And may we always do it, Lord, with humble hearts and desire to glorify your name. Help us, God, to have wisdom, know where to put the resources, to know what to promote, to know, Lord, to find and to recognize opportunities for your kingdom, Lord, for the establishment of local churches and for, Lord, more pastors to be raised up to help God 
shepherd your flock. Help us, Lord, to find those who need churches, wherever they may be, in whatever city and county and countryside, God, here in America. Presbyteries, especially in our local churches, God, uh, would be aware and be able to reach out. It's hard, Lord. We don't have a lot of resources and funds and money, big advertisement budgets. But, Lord, but you and your special providence for your church, not just the OPC, Lord, but for all of your churches, wherever they may be. Often guide us and bring people to us who wish to hear your word and wish to be with the saints and to grow with them. Help us, Lord, to that end, and not to be discouraged, God, but to ever rejoice that you are with us, that you have established your church a little here and a little there. We pray, God, also for the salvation of those dear to us, for family members and friends, God, people we've known for a long time. Our hearts go out to them, Lord, but they want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Some of them have known better and know the truth. Others don't ever want to hear the truth, Lord. Uh, we, of course, cannot say much sometimes. It can be very hard and frustrating for us, Lord. May we persevere nevertheless, Lord, even if that means being silenced. We love them. We have to be with them. We want to be with them, Lord, but it grieves us. They do not share our salvation, even though they may share our friendship and our biology and our family history. And pray, God, that we would not give up as long as there is breath in them. To pray for their souls, to pray for the movement of their hearts uh, towards you, God, that your spirit will use providence, even the harshness of life and the difficulties of this world, Lord, to wake them up to their need of a Savior. Please sin. Our Lord and Savior, we continue to pray for fellow Christians, God, who work for us, work for nation, work for our county, work for our city and state, Lord, and the military and the police departments and the medical and emergency services, God, that you protect them and watch over them, God. And we know of some in our church, Lord, young men in the military, continue to give them access to you, to your word, to the Bible, certainly, Lord, to prayer, that they would stand firm and seek out uh, support, Lord, and fellow Christians of like faith and practice, God, to reinforce their faith, Lord. May they stand firm against uh, often errors and lies taught in those institutions as they have uh, ways of things into molding people in a way of thinking that sometimes is contrary to your word. But certainly, Lord, we ask that they would do well at their job, pay attention, Lord, and be upstanding workers as best they can, God, to know their strengths and weaknesses and to capitalize on their strengths, God, so they can be uh, good members of the military, Lord, for your glorious namesake. Keep them out of harm's way, we pray especially, and for the police, Lord, and for the medical and the like, and that they would also be witnesses, Lord, as, as their co-workers, the wretchedness of this world as in the police departments or at the hospitals, Lord, and people see uh, death often, uh, that they would be able to give an answer of the hope that is within them and point them to Jesus Christ and to remind the world that it is a lost and dying world and they have no hope without Christ. So God, be with our brothers and sisters, Lord, in those fields. Protect them and help them, Lord, especially, again, in the military that have access to good chaplains and the like. We thank you, God, for being with the church, for being with us this week, God, for blessing us with all these physical blessings with air conditioning units here, Lord, uh, with lights and protection from the sun, ability to be with one another. Help us, God, to cast aside all distractions, to focus upon you, to be encouraged, Lord, that you are with us and that your gospel is protecting and purging us to be more like you. In your name alone we pray. Amen. God above, in your gracious providence, we are able to give these tithes and offerings and ask God for wisdom of the church, to use them for the good of your people and for the expansion of your church and kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. Let us turn to our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. As the title is, we see in the early chapters of Genesis, the beginning of all kinds of things, obviously of all things outside of God, even meteorology, father of metals and music, jubal and the like. We also have the Genesis or the beginning sin. Can't hear me? Really?
Is that better? It, controller back there may get bumped once in a while, and we try to set it up in the morning. So, Okay, Genesis 3, 1 through 8. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then we have Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12. You take notes in your Bible, you can put that as a reference point. Romans 5.12 we read, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Let us pray. We read here, God, of the fall, of the great watershed moments in our Life as humans, Lord, and the family of humanity, Adam and Eve, Adam in particular, bringing sin to the human race. So we mourn in reading this, God. We feel certainly in our own breasts the effects even to this day, even we who are saved, God. Yet, Lord, we rejoice for it brought about, as only you can through your providence, good from evil, that is, Jesus Christ and the greatness of your grace and mercy, now shown all the more in our lives. Help us, God, to remember this basic doctrine that in Adam's fall, we send all what it means for us, and especially, Lord, what it means for the world and the need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. As I continue now through the basics of the Christian faith, I do this every few years. It's good to go over these things. And, of course, I take different texts and organize it a little differently at times and highlight certain truths. Here we have Man Is Part 2. Part series. We did a three-part series on God. The, the like we have man is here in Genesis 3, 1, 8. Now, the number one school book in America for almost 150 years was the New England Primer, in the late 1600s, early 1800s. The usage of the book spread throughout the 13 colonies from New England to the Deep South. Tutors, teachers, pastors, and parents used the book to teach little boys and girls about their ABCs and they're one, two, threes. And the ABCs, I like to say, is the alphabet, the Bible, and the catechisms. It included stories. I have a couple copies at home. Find it online for free. Spelling words. And a clever list of the alphabet to instruct little tykes, not only their letters, but also their theology along with their letters. You've heard some of this before. Today we have A is for apple, B is for boy. At least we used to. I don't know what they have anymore, if they even teach some places that. Except... As the Puritans like to do, their alphabet rhymed with something meteor. For example, B, the life to mend, the book, attend. That's B. What is A? A is in Adam's fall, we send all. All the young boys and girls for 150 years learned that in early America. Isn't that amazing? In Adam's fall, we send all. A nice summary of the doctrine of the fall and of original sin. 
Hundreds of thousands of children learned this rhyme. Theology for the tykes. Oh, for that day again, brothers and sisters. Practical theology at its best. So let us learn this truth anew in a day and age in which it's being lost more and more to stand against the age of ignorance and to also be encouraged again that in spite of the sin backdrop of our salvation, therefore encourage us all the more how great and wonderful our God and Savior is in saving us from Adam's fall. So the first point, I have three points, and it's Adam's fall, fallen through original sin where I talk about uh, the federal theology that Adam represented us legally before God in the covenant of works. And then the next two points are we sinned all. First point being original sin that we're born in sin, and the second point being what they call actual sins, that original sin births what we see outwardly as sin or see in our hearts at least what is sin. So the origins of sin through Adam legally, and then the next two are what we have are the effects of the fall upon us. And Adam's fall, fallen through original sin, is the first point. The fall, as we read here, it's assumed throughout the entirety of the Bible. It's not brought up again everywhere else. It's just there. It's the backdrop that people are born in sin. The sin is there. People want to sin, and it brings misery upon this world. The death came as a result of the fall. And as you know, they live very close to the earth. When I went over a uh, medieval period, I went through some of the details of children growing up and the work they had to do and everything else. And we saw that they live close to death and life in the way we don't. They saw the consequences of sin a lot more clearer than often we have growing up in the prosperity of the West. Here we are reading the origin of human sinfulness, the decision to sin by our first parents and Adam in particular. So we see that sin is not uh, sin is not simply and only the decisions you make to sin, but also uh, the condition or being you find yourself in if you are not saved. You are a sinner, therefore you do sin. Unpack that some more. If Adam and Eve did not disobey, then you would not be able, uh, you would not, we wouldn't be here today, we wouldn't have this problem anymore, obviously. But they did, and God brought us here, his providence, for his reasons, he allowed it. The effects of the fall, and Adam's fall, we sinned all. Specifically, Adam was the federal and biological head of the human race. The biological is obvious, right? Adam and Eve are the first parents, and we can all claim Adam and Eve as our great, 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 however long and greats that is, parents, everyone on earth, and will always be that case. That's what it means to be the biological head of the human race. But he's also the federal head of the human race. That is the covenantal or the legal head of the human race. What Adam would do with the covenant or not do would affect us and all of us. We read a summary of that truth in Romans 5.12. That's why I read it. Romans 5.12 we read, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world. Is that one man that sin entered the world? Paul knows his Bible, all saying Adam. It becomes clearer as you go to the rest of Romans 5. Here it's Adam, his sin brought sin into the world, and death through sin upon the whole world. This doctrine of the federal headship of Adam is an important doctrine. There in the Bible, I'm not going to go through a lot of detail of it. Well, two more verses here about Adam being the head. First Timothy 2.13, in First Timothy 2.13 we read, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. They didn't say Adam didn't sin. It's just that Adam was not deceived. Adam sinned with his eyes wide open is the point. Adam won culpable, and through him we are culpable. And the idea of Adam and Eve being the head of the race is emphasized also by the phrase begotten in his own or image. Remember that in early Genesis? 
Genesis 5.3. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So the Bible is showing us that to be born from Adam is to be born in the likeness of Adam, not only biologically, that's a given, it's not the emphasis of the text here, but morally, we are born in sin. But I'll give you a simple explanation of the federalship of Adam. That is what Adam did affect all of us. Think about president going to war. President goes to war, go to war with Russia or China or Africa or whatever. The soldiers coming over here and fighting us are not going to ask, do you agree with the president or didn't you agree? No, he made a decision that affects all of us. So it happens in life. A father goes into debt. The family still has to pay it off. It's going to affect the family. So as our covenant representative, what he did affects us. In this case, it was a negative effect. We have a parallel with Christ. And we know that, again, in Romans 5, right? If one man, through one man's transgression, sin came upon us and death came upon us, through one man's righteousness and obedience, life shall come to us. Free life and justification, to summarize Romans 5. Accept this with Christ. Christ died for us. Christ obeyed for us. Christ obeyed and merited the law and perfect obedience in our stead. It's not my own. I didn't obey the law perfect enough. Christ did it for me. And so here, Adam did it for me. <laughs> he sinned for me. He sinned and he did represent us. And that's the federal idea. People don't like that, but they like the Christ part, right? Because Christ did something for me. That's great. Yay. But remember, we are born in sin because of Adam. When we say because of Adam, I don't mean because only and merely, and it's all his fault. We are also morally culpable for what Adam did, not just the effects. Thing. And that gives us here to the second point. We send all. In Adam's fall, we send all. Fallen through original corruption. Fallen through original corruption. What Adam brought to the human race was not the legal problem only, but a moral problem that came from the legal problems. The legal reality, of course, is a moral reality as well. Sometimes we use the word original sin to refer to original corruption. And that means the inner or innate corruption of all mankind. That you are born sinner. Or you had plans to lie to your neighbor, steal from your coworker, hold and harbor hatred and anger in your heart. You were already a sinner for it birthed those activities. That's what we mean here. It's also called the seedbed of sin. The seedbed of sin. Original sin or corruption, the innate inclination, disposition, or orientation towards sin. Without Christ, people will choose sin. You're like, what, 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 what do you mean? Perhaps is the question. Your neighbor's going to ask you, what does that mean? I take care of my husband. I take care of my wife. I feed my children. Take care of the yard. I help you with your yard. I'm doing good things. Those are sinful things. We're going to get that when we talk about the law. But those are sinful things. If they are not doing it for God, if they do not believe in Jesus Christ, if they are not a Christian, another way of saying it, all the good they do is not good. And God is, in fact, offended by it. It's sin. Sometimes you call that total depravity. This inclination, disposition, or orientation towards sin does not mean, oh, you're always going to kill your neighbor, but whatever good you do, you don't do it for God's glory. You do it for your selfish gain. You do it for popularity. You do it because you feel pressured. Whatever the reason is, and sometimes Christians have those reasons, but those aren't the only reasons. We sin too, yes. We also want to do the right thing and we fail. The unbeliever doesn't want to do the right thing. That's what we forget. The idea of original sin, or sometimes called total depravity, where the mind, will, and emotions, and conscience are fallen and inclined towards and want to do sin. So they may pick one nice sin, they're being nice to the neighbor, but in their heart they're perhaps lusting towards the neighbor because the act of being nice is also part of the act of your heart. Now if you have evil, if you're angry in your heart, you're doing nice things, we're all like, well, I'm glad you're doing nice things, but why are you so angry with me? 
We know it's more important of the heart. It all starts in the heart. And this is what we mean by original corruption. It's in the heart. It starts there first. What's the purpose in life? What do they want to do? Why are they doing it? They're not doing it for God's glory. They hate God. They know there's God and they flee from him. Well, Romans 1.18. This is what I'm talking about. So we can't always go by outward form. The parents missed that. Cain and Abel, if they thought he was a murderer, you'd think they'd act a little differently, right? Kind of stay away from the guy. He's got a temper. Maybe keep another sword with him or a rock or something. No, he got attacked. Talked to his brother and killed him. Had anger in his heart. Even though he did all the right things, it looks like. He seemed like perhaps a good son, a good brother. Don't go by outward appearances, brothers and sisters. God looks on the heart. What do we mean by original corruption? It's your inclination. They have, they just, they're going to think about sin or do something about sin or make some excuse about fleeing from God because sins can be sins of omission as well, right? Not doing what you're supposed to do. But it affects all of us, our mind, will, and emotions, the, uh, the entirety of our moral faculties, they used to say. And so we read, for example, uh, the fallen mind and the fallen conscience in Titus 1.15. The fallen mind and the fallen conscience conscience, excuse me, in Titus 1.15. Pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, moral and upright. Pure is a shorthand way of saying uh, perfect and righteous, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. So even though they're feeding their children, taking care of their husband or, or wife and their neighborhood and their friends, it's an unpure act as far as God's concerned, because they're not repentant and they don't care about God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the cornerstone of reality, brothers and sisters. To ignore Him is a grievous sin. And worse than that, not just to ignore Him, to flee from Him and to make up other gods, to make up other, other realities like evolution, is to add more insult upon injury. We must remember that. So I went over the gloriousness of the Trinity and God and how holy and righteous He is. So that when we understand original corruption, original sin, the inclination, even before the, the thought of sin or the act of sin or punching somebody or running towards wickedness, they're already inclined that way. They're already predisposed as their language we would use. Their thoughts are fallen. Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. A fallen heart. Now the heart, of course, in the Bible, just means the center of man, all that he is, all his faculties, we would say. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, and is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Another way of looking at it, as I hinted at before, do what you are. Do what you are. Does a lion eat meat because it's a carnivore? Or does eating meat make it a carnivore? No, a lion, a little baby lion, cubs, come out of the womb wanting to eat meat, having never tasted it. Mom's not feeding them meat. They're getting nutrients, yes, but they haven't actually ate meat. Because that's their nature. The nature dictates and determines the actions. If you are a sinner, you're going to have sinful actions, whatever they may look like. Small sins and big sins, it doesn't matter. It won't eat a salad. <laughs> Would you call it a herbivore? Like a sick dog. What does a sick dog do? It eats grass. It doesn't feel good. Oh, look. No, you're like, no, it's, it's, it's going against its nature. Something's wrong with the animal. Not eating dog food, you know, and meat and things like that. It's sick. Because we understand intuitively that there's a nature of something and that gives rise to its actions that we observe. Our science is based on that. We have that in Genesis. Like begets like, not the actions. Kind of interesting with respect to evolution. They want to say the actions. You have certain actions and you have the bad actions, so the bad genes die off and the good genes survive because you did the good actions. No, you have nature already. You have a nature already. Birds give birth to birds. They're going to do bird things coming out of the womb, out of the egg in that case. So it's a way of understanding reality, of the nature of things. We live this way. 
Our science is based on that in biology. You don't expect a monkey to start acting like a dog. If it was, we'd say, oh, look, it's a dog. I mean, the way people talk in theology, if your actions dictate who you are as such, as opposed to reflecting who you are, then that monkey is actually apparently a dog. No, you say there's something wrong with that monkey. It's sick. Or someone taught it the wrong things or something. Christ talked about it very well. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be. You see what someone's treasure is, you see what's in their heart. We are born sinners. We do acts of sin because we are sinners. Our nature determines our actions. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. David says, you're like, David, a great man of God, I was brought forth in iniquity, he said, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 51.5. So he cries out to God in Psalm 51.5 for mercy because he knows he's a sinner from birth. That's a humbling doctrine, brothers and sisters. Job 15.14. In Job 15.14 we read, What is in man? What is man that he should be pure? And he who is born of a woman, that he should be righteous. Recognize anyone born of a woman is not righteous. It's a rhetorical question. Who is he? It's, there's nobody. We're all sinners. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? The answer is no. Then may you do good who are accustomed to do evil. You already have that custom by birth, by reason of being born sinners because of the fall of Adam who represented us. Original corruption original sin, depravity, or the seedbed of all sins, or the mother of all sins, to summarize here in this last part of this section here. James 1.14 is a good place, perhaps, look at one time. James 1.14-15. Meditate upon the connection here in this verses, these verses. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Can't blame God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Why is that? God has no sin in him. He leaves it unsaid, right? God has no sin in him. So he doesn't tempt people to sin. He's not morally responsible for your sins. Continues on in verse 14. But each one is tempted, we are tempted, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. It's already within us, he says. It's not within God. That's why he doesn't tempt anybody. He's got nothing to entice him. The desires or lusts, sinful desires in us, we are drawn away by it and enticed and captured. Then when desire has conceived, language there, that's why we talk about the, the seed bed or the mother of all sins, is original sin. When it conceives, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We are tempted because we already have an inclination towards the sin. The lust is there. And we are drawn like a magnet. A Temptation isn't there. The magnet is not active, right? When the other side, the North Pole and the South Pole, the magnet, are not near each other, nothing's going on. It's kind of innate. and doesn't seem very exciting. That's why some things aren't very tempting to you, right? But other things are very tempting to you. I'm not saying we all have the same inclinations or temptations, but it's there. It's a real thing. And the text tells us God doesn't tempt us because he's got no inclination towards sin. But each one of us is, is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. That is your inclination of the sin that you want. And that gives birth to sin, the text here uses the word sin, not because the illicit desire is not sin, but he's making distinction between the origin, it conceives, right? When the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, what we call the actions, your thoughts, your words, and if you keep that up, it's full grown, it brings forth death. The growth, you see, the imagery of giving birth, you're giving birth to sin. Why? Because the womb is already in you, the womb of sin, the seedbed of sin. That's what he's pointing out here. That's what you're enticed by. And it brings forth what we call actual sin. 
to make the distinction, because he's making a distinction here between that the sin and sin, and then the full effects of sin, which is death. Death is not a good thing. And that brings us the other point then. So let me give you an example before I get to the last point. Let's say you're attracted to other people's money. What would the birth of that sinful inclination look like? First, the innate desire. Innate because it may not be active at any given time. People with sin don't often think about sin all day long. They've got other things going on in their mind. But like a magnet needs two parts for attraction to work, so it is with your sin. Your own desire and the object of your desire come together. And so your neighbor comes to you and says, let's go next door to the other neighbor down the street and steal his money while he's out of town. If you do not have the innate inclination or disposition or orientation or whatever word you want to use toward lusting after the other person's money, it won't be a temptation, will it? You'd be like, what are you talking about? So James is describing whatever particular sin you have an attraction towards, it's already there. It's a lust. It's conceived. It's there, ready to get going. Temptation comes, it, gets, it brings forth, and is birthed now into what we typically call sin. The actions, the thoughts. But the inclination to sin is what? Wait, is it good or bad? Bad. So bad, what would you call, what would you call it? Sin! An inclination to sin is sin. Pick a sin and say, is it okay to be inclined to that sin, even though I haven't actually done the act itself yet? We're all like, well, that's crazy. Of course it's wrong. Even if you haven't even thought about it, if you're, quote, attracted to it only when it comes to you, that's a problem, man. Get over it. There's a problem. I'm, you know, I'm inclined to murder people. I haven't done it yet. I haven't thought about it yet. It's sin. The inclination itself is sin. So original sin, the birth, the conceiving of it, before it actually gives forth the actions the self-sin. We call that original sin or the seedbed of sin, the mother of all sins. Does that make sense? That's what I'm talking about. That's what the Bible's talking about. That's what James gives in such a, a, a masterful formation here by the Holy Spirit. So it brings us to the third point. In Adam's fall, we sinned all, fallen through everyday sin. That's what we typically recognize. Go, Oh yeah, that's the real stuff. But we know it's not what has been brought forth from our hearts, fallen hearts. In thought, word, and deed, Romans 3.13, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and destruction and misery are in their ways. Is Paul being a meanie and picking on people? Or is he seeing beyond the outward forms into the heart of the matter and says, this is what it means to be unsaved, to be an unbeliever? with such graphic illustrations from the book of Psalms, of all places, what sin is. These are the concrete fruits of sin that comes from the fertile soil of original corruption in our hearts, from the womb. Conceives, it breaks forth into these concrete sins. Sin within and sin without is another way of looking at it. That unbelieving Boy Scout who helps old ladies across the street, I'm fine with that, I'm glad I want more of that, I'd rather have that kind of sin than the other kind of sins. But it's still a sin because he doesn't do it God's glory. Depraved sinner who hates God. Don't let the world gaslight you. They're so nice. I know they're nice, brothers, and you should be nice to them. But as far as God's concerned, if they're not believers and who repent of sin and follow Jesus Christ, they are wicked sinners, and we ought to have God's judgment, not theirs. And believe in God's judgment and not theirs. And so, you see this understanding of sin, verse way, society, run around saying, you know, you're literally Hitler. I know you're a nice guy, and you've done all kinds of good things, and you shoveled my yacht my yard, and there was an article actually saying that you, these people shoveled my yard from snow, but I, I hate them, and they're literally Hitler. Because in their eyes, in their twisted eyes, the actions aren't relevant, what they are relevant. And they've got some truth in that. It's what they are. They are, they are sinners. Unbelievers are sinners. 
and I, and I love them as a brother, or if they're a sibling, you know, if they're a family member, if they're a neighbor. I'm not running around hating them, but we have to recognize what God describes as sin. Is sin. It looks nice around us. If you treated your parents the way unbelievers treated God, it would accuse you of hating your parents. Long short of it, isn't it? They completely ignore God. They have no thoughts about God. They don't want to worship God. If you had that with your parents, you just completely ignored your parents. You ever think about your parents, you don't care about your parents, you'd be like, what's your problem? Don't you love your parents? This is what's going on here, brothers and sisters. This is sin in this world. Sin in their, in their thoughts within, and sins, of course, without, when it breaks forth into the obvious wretchedness that we are aware of in this world, and we hate it. This is why the outward act of helping old ladies across the street is a good example. It is the outward good, an outwardly good act. But I dare say... If Hitler was helping an old lady across the street, we wouldn't say, that's a good act. We would say, get rid of Hitler, because we understand the nature of something. It's often more important than just the mere act of it, isn't it? Snake, step on its head. It's a nice snake. Voice of snake, kill it. And who? Who is a sinner? We know what the sin is. We know it starts in the heart. It goes out into the actions and the thoughts. Of course, it's everyone. Wherefore, as by one man sin into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for all, that all have sinned. It just pushes the two together. Adam brought sin, but you also are culpable for your sin. All in one verse. Isn't that amazing? For all have sinned, it said. You're morally culpable. Everyone has. As it is written, Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. To have seeker-sensitive churches makes no sense because no one seeks after God. They need to be warned about hell and encouraged to repent. From Adam onward, everyone is born in the state of sin and perpetuates the sin by more sin and concrete acts of sin, but not Jesus Christ, perfect one, the perfect Adam. There was no innate inclination, disposition, or orientation towards sin. Someone asked him to steal, like Satan, steal God's glory. Think about it, that's what he was doing. He's asking all kinds of sins. Christ wasn't like, ah, oh, you know, I got something. He had nothing. It's like, what are you talking about? Go away, Satan. You're wicked. No inclination. At all. And that is the good news for those who hate their sinful desire and flee to him for salvation. For there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And praise be to God. Without an Adam, no Christ. That parallel there of the covenants. Christ has a new covenant. Not the covenant of works like Adam, in which we fell. But the covenant of grace in which he obeyed for us and gave us perfect righteousness in heaven forevermore. Praise be to his name. Let us pray. We thank you, God. We praise your name. And although it is a sad and hard doctrine to learn about the depravity, to learn about the fall through Adam and the birth of original sin, that we have an inclination towards sin before we actually have thoughts and words, Lord, of sin, it's a sober doctrine, God. It's very serious, Lord. Never flee from it. Believe in it and warn people of dangers. Sin, God. Glories of Christ Jesus and learn and be encouraged all the more. In spite of this, in spite of Adam and how bent towards sin we were, you overcame it, Lord. You conquered sin and death and gave us salvation. Praise be to your name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give.